Welcome to the Infernal Schoolhouse Podcast. Explosions and fire. My name is Brian. My name is Aaron. And this week we're talking about toxic player behavior at the table. Absolutely, Brian. And before we get into it, I think that we're going to make this more of a two-parter and come back to toxic dungeon masters at a later date. But I think this is a good idea to kind of mull around and figure out what we think in a general sense a toxic player is. Yeah, and I think for me, it's an interesting thought experiment to potentially differentiate toxic players versus toxic behavior. And I'm interested to, you know, kind of get your take. But I think I'm wary of saying, oh, that person is toxic. Right. And rather try to break down what what about it? What's the specific behavior? So we have some ideas about, you know, some of these actions, behaviors at the table. And then we're going to do some hard thinking about maybe some possible remedies here. Yeah. And I think it would be unfair, like you're saying, to put it into some sort of class of people, like in D&D, where it's like, oh, I'm a cleric, or I'm this kind of horrible player, or whatever it is. Oh, That's I'm a toxic. Where, yeah, exactly. We're not trying to go that route, but, you know, D&D or other TTRPGs are very much a crucible of social interaction forming, where you're understanding what your place is in your own group, and then how that fits into the overall society, and then how you interact with other people. And so, we're hoping that... You know, if you identify with anything that we're talking about, understanding that there are ways around it, there are ways to grow through it and then have a, a better role playing experience. Yeah, I love it. So the first one for me, Aaron, that I'm thinking about is the behavior of spotlighting, yeah. just like hogging the spotlight. Yeah, for sure. That is a constant issue for DMs that they struggle with, where you have somebody who is really, whether it's indirectly or directly constantly pulling attention onto themselves in the game and they're they're the ones that are trying to lead the conversation nothing wrong with the leader in a party or they're the ones that are really pushing it over and over and over again whether it's their interactions with other players at the table or with the dungeon master they just constantly keep bringing it back to themselves yeah and i th i think there's a way of doing this actually that isn't toxic which would be, okay, maybe I'm really outgoing, maybe I'm really comfortable speaking, but I could continue to kick it over to other people. And Aaron, I've seen you do this in, in, when you're a player. You'll like, if, if there's an uncomfortable lull, you'll be like, all right, so Fabio steps forward <laughs> and he looks at Karen. Karen, what do you think we should do? That's a great way to highlight another yeah. character versus Fabio steps up, kicks over the bucket. I'm going to search in here. I'm going to loot the body. I'm bored. I'm leaving. Right. And then everyone else is like, and every player is different in the game. And that's, I think what spotlighters don't understand, or at least really take to heart is that there are a lot of different personality types, introverts, extroverts, people who are neurodivergent, everybody kind of getting together and trying to play this game who may be playing role-playing games the first time or may have been playing for a long time, but maybe that's still not quite in their comfort zone yet of, hey, I'm openly wanting to say this thing right away. So it's taking a pause and reflecting before constantly running the conversation. Yeah, and I think that's a theme that we're going to see over and over again is self-reflection. Yeah. Which is an amazing attribute in a person. Yeah. And an amazing attribute in a player. Agreed. And so I think we can then move from spotlighting to the other more frustrating one for a dungeon master, I would say, than players, but it can work, is that of the distraction or the person who is causing distractions on a regular basis. And so what do you see that as when you're at the table? 
For me, and honestly, this hits me just as hard as a player. It's side conversations. Mm-hmm. I, you know, because it's like we're playing a game together. Right. And it's one thing if you say, hey, I'm going to have an aside, either with the DM or with this other character. And, you know, for reasons, I don't think everyone else needs to hear it. Right. But often, two people just get really excited and start giggling and chatting and talking. And then as I'm speaking or trying to listen, I'm very frustrated and distracted by what's happening. Yeah. And there are exceptions to this. So, for example, if you are more of a LARPer and you play games where it does require moving around the room, not having a game master there right away, there are going to be those sidebar conversations where that's actually part of the play. But if you're in a game where the game master has to know what you're saying and you're having a conversation while somebody else is actually having a narrative conversation, then you're kind of breaking the game in the moment. Yeah. And then the other one too is I think just technology at the table. Yeah. And I was laughing when I was thinking through this one, Aaron, because when we were at the first one shot weekend, I had been a player who was used to playing a lot online. And so I had my character sheet on my computer and you had said in the email invite, no tech at the table. And I remember approaching you and being like, Hey man, so my character sheets uh, on my computer and you're like, Oh, don't worry. I've printed it out as a PDF. And I just sort of looked at you and you're like, I have all the confidence in, in the world, Brian, that you, you're going to do great with the character sheet. <laughs> and you walked away and I was like, oh, um, but there's a lot of tabs on my computer. Yeah. And it, it's pro- it probably would have been very easy for me to become easily distracted. And so I actually had more fun and felt more focused and engaged because I did not have any technology at the table. Yeah. I mean, and I, we're all victims of our technology in this constantly having to respond to the world that we live in now. But it makes the game environment so much better for everyone else if you're not using that in those few hours that you have together to have some fun. Because when you're distracted, you're not hearing what I as the game master are saying. Somebody else is saying. And then you stop. And then we might ask you for a prompt to see if you can engage. Or you might say, oh, I wasn't paying attention. And now we have to repeat everything that we just did because you couldn't be bothered to take yourself out of your own technological moment. Yes, big time. So what do we have next, Brian? Okay, so I was thinking through this, and then you came up with this word that I wasn't familiar with, which is edgelord. I love it because it almost sounds like it's from the world of D&D. <laughs> so when you say that word, what does that mean to you? Well, let me start off by saying I didn't invent this word. Oh, yeah, uh, you, uh, just, you just knew it. Uh, yes. Um, this term, and I'm not going to get into its breakdown as a portmanteau, but it is uh, one that's just somebody who's overly brooding, overly a pot stirrer, somebody who's causing issues within the party. A lot of times, if you have like a rogue in your party, they're normally an edgelord. You're not going to see like a bard as an edgelord, but it doesn't necessarily mean a certain character type. It's just the way you play the game where you're causing conflict with others, you're not cooperating, and you're kind of thriving in very disorderly chaos and frustration. Yeah. And to me, one of the key tenets of role-playing games is cooperation. You know, it's like if you're playing a character who doesn't want to go on an adventure or who doesn't want to work with other people, then I think that's something that should have been addressed prior to your arrival at the party. Exactly. You know what I mean? And and if we're truly role-playing and we're in a tavern and we're pulling it together and I recognize that you're that person, you're uninvited on the adventure. Right. I mean, and that's the thing. There, There is supposed to be conflict in parties and between people. That's a normal thing that we deal with in regular life. And especially if you have 
very diametrically opposed characters in games like a paladin and a rogue hanging out. The way that they want to get to the same solution is two different paths, and it can cause frustration for them, and they can have that animosity, but you don't want to have an entire session of three hours where two people are arguing and bickering because somebody's going to edgelord it up versus having a little bit of conflict, we'll work through it, and then make the game move. Yeah, and I think that those conflicts when dealt with appropriately and maturely can end up providing character arcs, which are yeah. so satisfying. But if not, if, if you just hold the line and you just continue to stir up controversy and challenges, it can be really boring for everybody else or really frustrating slash awkward for everybody else. Yeah. I mean, I think that when you look at any TTRPG, there's a group of people who have agreed to be together. And when I say people, I don't mean the people actually playing the game, but actually the people within the game. And they obviously have a common cause and goal. So there's a reason that there's still glue there, that they're not separating at the seams. And if you're constantly pulling at the seams trying to make that not work, then why are you even doing this in the first place? Yeah, exactly. And I think one thing that that makes me think of is kind of like the next bucket in my mind, which is the player's ability to pick up on social cues. And so to me, there's this distinction between in-game conflict and player conflict. And so I think if I am that rogue and I am kind of picking at the seams a little bit, it, I, if I'm getting some healthy, fun role play interactions, I think that's, that's great. And hopefully I'll pick up on that. But if I start to look around the room and I see people averting their eyes and looking down and looking right. away, and maybe I start to hear some actual frustration in the, in the voices of my fellow players, hopefully I can redirect a little bit. Yeah. And, and that can be my opportunity to maybe back down or at least table my my challenges. Yeah, I think of it a lot like imagining an open mic night because we are doing improv. We're up here trying to have some entertainment. And if every time you're talking, the entire room is getting silent and there are some other sighs or frustrations, you're probably bombing an open mic night. It's probably time <laughs> to change up your material. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> I have so much anxiety around like, I have so much anxiety around comedians, stand-up yeah. comedy in general. So, and part of what I love about role-playing games is I can sort of address, touch those fears and in, in, in some sort of a therapeutic way. So. It yeah. just makes me cringe a little bit. Well, you had uh, encountered something like this recently where you were running a game for some middle school kids that was de dealing with the picking up on the social cues. Oh, my gosh. Yes. And luckily, I had a librarian there who was sort of charged with helping with behavior. Mm. So I set up what I thought was a pretty simple hook. There was a, a distressed and I, I made her a little girl distressed little girl who came up and was begging the adventurers for help. And this little boy, maybe he was maybe 11. He said, I tie her to a tree and, and like he was going to beat her up. And luckily the librarian was right there. I was like, <laughs> okay, so, so Tommy, we've had this conversation. <laughs> What's the point of this game? Right. And I was like, Oh my gosh. But you know, when it's, when it's kids or teens, I think I can, maybe more readily see what's happening and help coach. Mm -hmm. But when it's a, a fellow adult, it may be that, and especially if I'm not the, the game master, it maybe it's a little bit more awkward for me to somehow put myself into the coach mode. You're right. <laughs> like, okay, Bob, like what's the point of role-playing games? <laughs> That's right. I know you're my 40 year old neighbor, but come on, buddy. <laughs> so, 
That story makes me think about our next idea of toxicity at a table, and that's around harassers and innuendo makers. So I will just preface this by saying I love a good joke. I love a good inappropriate joke. But there are times and places and there's knowing your audience. And there is a lot of inappropriate talk at tables a lot of times. And especially if you have mixed audiences, um, if you're playing with somebody new or newish that you have never played with before, it makes for a really uncomfortable experience, especially not only as the player who's being made uncomfortable by it, but then also by the dungeon master who's now having to be kind of a cop for dealing with the weirdness that you're bringing to the table. Yeah, and I think it's interesting to, to think of it in, in terms of appropriateness because I think that term is very much predicated on the comfort level of the people that you're, that you're playing with. So for me, a possible anecdote here would just be antidote here would be the session zero. The, yeah. the setting of expectations, which I think really does fall to the game master to surface, you know, and encourage folks to express what are things that you are comfortable with and what are things that you maybe are not as comfortable with and how do we express those in real time mm -hmm. to make sure that there's a mutual comfort at the table. Yeah. And there, I haven't seen it much, but you know, there's also issues too of people getting a little bit more into the catching feelings for somebody else at the table and then taking that out in the game. And that's, not cool, and that's never going to work, even if, especially if it's the dungeon master, then it gets really weird. But the, the idea is, you know, we're not here to sexually harass, we're not here to, you know, verbally harass people, we're not here to have a bad time. We're here to actually enjoy a little bit of fantasy role play where we don't have to feel uncomfortable. We can actually have a safe space and play a little game. Yeah, and I think the hobby's really pushing this currently, maybe struggling with it, but pushing through it to the point where comfort safety all these all these ideas are at the forefront mm -hmm. of a lot of games specifically with session zeros is like how do you address that prior to the game even getting kicked off and how do you identify people that are going to work with you and be on the same page as you and maybe even filter out players that aren't interested or capable yeah absolutely so from here, we then move on to min-maxers. And so what do you think about, Brian, when you think about a min-maxer? You know, min-maxing is interesting for me because I'd read a lot about it as I was really getting into the hobby a couple of years ago. And I don't think I truly understood it. But what, what I was able to sort of glean was that that's a bad word somehow. Oh, they're a min-maxer. Yeah. In, in, a, in some kind of a dismissive way. Mm. Um, and I think for me, it's the idea of really leaning in on the technical aspects and the numbers to optimize a character. But when you say it like that, it doesn't sound so bad. It's like, oh, sure. I want the strongest barbarian. Like, yeah. that's cool. Or I want the most, I want the, I'm going to create a spellcaster that can deal the most damage. That's awesome. But I think for me, when I think of aggressive min-maxing, it's at the cost of everything else. Yeah. It, it, specifically at the cost of role play or even any kind of believability. For sure. And when I think about min-maxing, I think about aggressive min-maxing. So it's not just about wanting to make the best character you can. It's about really going, like you're saying, out of pocket here and making it so that the role play doesn't work. Like when I play a character and I pick a character, I pick one based upon what I want to play, not upon some sort of video gamification of the actual session itself. So I, if I'm playing a barbarian, I'm going to play a barbarian. Yeah, they're going to be strong. But they're also going to be probably not super wise, or if they are wise, not certainly very smart. And that's okay. That's what they're supposed to be like. And 
a min-maxer will say, well, I would like to have my cake and eat it too, and I want them to be all of that. So now it's a barbarian wizard that somehow worked that out. And it's just weird stuff like that where they want to try and get every single thing, and then they'll go on YouTube and find little exploits that they think will then work with a dungeon master. Yeah, they find a loophole where they can have this, but also that. Exactly. And then they're going to deal 42 points of damage on every turn, and it's like, okay, but... Is that fun for anyone else? I know right. you're loving that. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you're enjoying this this little moment here, but nobody else is loving it. And they often forget the cardinal rule of sitting at a table with a game master is that ultimately the game master is going to give you a ruling on whether or not that's cool. And I'm going to tell you right now, that stuff isn't cool. Yeah. For me, at a table specifically, I'm having this memory of this, this particular player that say we were going to go, you know, try to lie to the town's guard to get into the castle he would say things like who has the highest charisma Hmm. and then and then the expectation is we're all looking at the numbers on our sheets right and i remember one exchange where he was like well i have the highest charisma so i'm gonna go and i remember looking at him and saying tommen my character doesn't know what that is and doesn't care tommen has an inflated sense of ego and he's sure that he's the one that's going to go talk to this guard so tommen walks towards the guard because to me, that pulls me back into more of a role-playing cinematic moment rather than a like, wait, what? What What are the, like, as if there's stats at the bottom of the screen or something. <laughs> right. And then the person with the highest stat just automatically goes and does the thing. Yeah, it's a bit silly. And it really takes you out of the moment. Like, you're you're not really playing a role-playing game at that point. You're You're playing more of a tabletop miniatures game or you're playing a video game. And that's great if that's what you like to play, but... A lot of people at the table don't really want to play that way. We want to play where it's the role play. It's like you're talking about with Tommen, where you're going to go do that conversation because that's who you are as a character. Even if your charisma isn't amazing, you're still going to go over and try it anyway. Like the, the pickup artist, right, who's absolutely awful with people, yeah. is still going to go and approach somebody at a bar and say, hey, how you doing? And they might roll really bad at charisma yeah. because they're awful at it. Yeah, and that's like part of the fun of the story is the person who clearly shouldn't be doing the thing is doing the thing. (laughs) (laughs) It's like grab onto my strong hand sort of scenario. (laughs) So you had mentioned just a moment ago about the, the DM making the ruling. Right. And I think that's another big category for me where I can just remember a lot of sort of cringy moments where someone's really going to go hard and argue with Mm -hmm. the DM on a ruling. Yeah, it's really weird because I don't have any problem with uh, someone having objections to something that I might have said, and they want to provide those to me in a respectful, non-game-delaying fashion. We can talk about it, but ultimately, I want to move the game on, and I want to respect the other players as well as you. So, arguing over whether or not uh, I'm letting you do your min-max cheat is not going to make this game fun for anyone, right? And there are DMs who do take advantage of this. They're more of the power trippy sort of, my ruling is the ruling, blah, blah, blah. But those people end up having a table broken up anyway because nobody wants to play with that, right? But yeah, it's it's frustrating and it takes you out of the moment. Yeah, and I think it's a, it's a particular skill in life and in role-playing games where you can appropriately ask questions. Mm-hmm. And I think there's the text of what you're saying and then there's the subtext of what you're saying right always right so i could say hey aaron could we talk about that or i have a question about that but how i say it and the sort of energy or the emotion behind it is really important as well yeah and so i think 
Yeah, this one's hard because I think we've probably all, most people who've played a role-playing game felt have felt at a certain point that the DM maybe didn't make the correct ruling. Sure. And you have a question about it. I would say as often as not, people don't say anything and they just sort of swallow it, which probably is not good either. For sure. Yeah. And I will, I will be free to admit that I do make mistakes and that I do listen to people and I do oftentimes overrule myself. And if I think that they were in the right and it, it works, then we're going to make it work. I'm not going to sit here and be obstinate yeah. for sure. Yeah. As a DM, I've made an abundant, an abundance of mistakes, but I think that's actually part of the fun of the game. It's right. Like, okay. For now, we're going to do it this way, but let's have a little meeting after and we'll bust out the rule books and we'll figure this out. <laughs> and more often than not, it's like, oh yeah, I was totally wrong. Or yes. I just made that rule up. That's actually not a thing. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it makes it more fun because like a lot of my players know that I bring in a lot of homebrew rules because there's a lot in the books I don't like because I don't think they make the game flow, especially in 5e. And I think it makes it more interesting. Like, I can't tell you how many people got frustrated with the whole combined initiative thing. But I think that it was hilarious and it caused a lot of excitement in the game. Like, to- and, Yeah, and more realism. Right. Too, right? Like, I just love the idea that the fighter walked into Fireball. Yeah. Because it wasn't clear. Because there's no, you know, in, in the fantasy world, there's no opportunity for everyone to have this five-minute conversation before combat. Right. It just sort of happens. Yeah, and it helps the game flow to be like, okay, well, this is what I'm doing, this is what I'm doing, this is what I'm doing, and then things happen. So, that being said, I think a lot of where the arguments come up is around metagaming. Yeah, and this is another term that I think is really loaded, Mm -hmm. and it's like a dirty word in in role-playing. Oh, you're metagaming. Yeah. But in my experience, there's a ton of it happening at tables. And again, my read on this is it's really dependent on the comfort level and the sort of vibe at the table. Right. I have some players that have gotten better about their excessive metagaming. There's there's one player I have now who's a wonderful player, but I always know I can see when the light bulb goes off in his head where he's trying to process something that he knows in the outside world and is trying to put it in this world. And then oftentimes it won't work with whatever he's trying because you need to work with what your character knows, not with what your character doesn't know. Right. And so the so broad view, I guess, definition of metagaming would be to use information that the player has that the character doesn't have. Is right. that how you're yeah, for understanding sure. this? So like a good example of where this comes in is Druid's wild shape. So a druid actually has to shape an animal's scene. So you're supposed to have that compact with the DM ahead of time and saying, hey, here's the area of the world I'm from. I would have seen these creatures. That way you're not constantly pulling animals out of a hat just because... Or out of the monster manual. Yeah, it works for the scene, but it doesn't work for what your character is. You just want to make it work because you want to be successful at this exact moment with this exact tool because you happen to know about it in your regular brain. And that's not cool. That's not part of the fun of the game. Yeah. And in that sense, it's probably a, a little bit like min-maxing as well, right? Yes. Where you're just trying to get as much power, as much damage dealt, or as much cool out of it as you can. Right. At the sake of any kind of believability or realism. Yeah. And there's and there's challenges to it where it's impossible as a human being not to metagame on certain things. So, for example, if I, as a, a game master, I make riddles in a game, Right. It's almost impossible not to have somebody who's an intelligent person playing a dumb character want to chime in and give their their two cents. So you just let it happen, yeah. right? But you know, for the rest of it, it's it's a bit much. If you know, I'm this 
poor rogue who's only lived in town and I only steal from people and somehow I know what a Gorgon is and what their weaknesses are. Like, no, you really don't. I mean, come on. Yeah, or I challenge you to weave a narrative that would give you that as the background. Absolutely. Like, I could see the Goodwill hunting rogue. Yeah. Where he's just a he's just a scruffy little thief, but he's actually brilliant and he reads every night. But I think that's something that would have to have been in the backstory of the character yeah. in order for that to really play out. And I do always give that challenge to my players. If they start saying something I know is going in that territory, I will ask them, how do you know that? Yeah. And if they can give me a reasonable response, we'll make sure that they know that. Yeah. And potentially dependent on a role to like a history check or something oh, yeah. like that as yeah. well. Okay. So, Aaron, we've talked about these sort of behaviors and qualities at the table. But I'd like to shift the conversation a little bit more towards and maybe even just ask the question, did anyone get that sort of like uncomfortable feeling as we were talking through these behaviors? I did for sure on a couple of them. So what's the answer? If I recognize this in myself, what do I do or how do I start to address that behavior? Sure. Well, you're already making the most important step, which you should be doing every single session anyway, which is having some self-reflection of understanding what you're saying, what you're doing, what you're not doing, what you're not saying. And then I would say the best thing you can do starting from there is talk to your game master about it. Get some feedback from them saying, hey, how'd you think about my playthrough? Is there anything that you would change? Is there anything you think I can work on? Like, what do you think I could do to bring a little bit more to the table? Yeah, and even be reflective about your emotions too. Right. Because I think a lot of times when we're doing, when we're behaving badly, we don't know we're behaving badly. But I can associate a specific kind of discomfort or awkward feeling. Mm -hmm. And so maybe it's sort of like decoding that a little bit. Yeah. Like, hey, DM, you know, when when we were climbing that mountain and we had that encounter, I felt a little funky. About, yeah. You know, like, how, and, and solicit that feedback. Yeah. Which I think is a great, it, in the opposite almost, a great trait for a player. Solicit feedback from your DM. I love that. Yeah. And I think another thing you can do is to really support the narrative and support your fellow players and what I mean by that is that understanding that you are not the end-all be-all in the game. You're part of the game. And one of my favorite subreddits is called I'm the Main Character. And it's just people freaking out in public thinking that they are they can just take up any space and do whatever they want. Like I saw one the other day was a guy who was just karate kicking in the middle of an airport because he was delayed on a flight. He was bored, so he was recording it for his socials. And that's, <laughs> that's how I feel a lot of players are when they're spotlighting. It's just karate kicking in the middle of a busy airport for no reason. Um, and that lack of self-awareness too, right? Like, do you have any idea what you look like to everyone else in the world right now? Exactly. But yeah, just know that you're not the only person at the table. And that other people would like to be a part of this as well and share in that conversation. Yeah. And in conversations past, Aaron, when we've had this topic come up, you have mentioned an idea about what types of characters you play mm -hmm. and how that may actually be part of the problem or enabling this behavior. So can you talk me through, do you remember what I was talking yeah, about? Yeah, absolutely. Can you talk me through that, that idea that you have? Yeah. So one of the best things you can do in any TTRPG is get outside of your normal wheelhouse. So that being said, if you have a certain amount of these traits that seem to work with a particular type of character you're playing. So for example, if you are a rogue and you're constantly an edgelord rogue and it's exhausting for everyone, then stop playing a rogue for a minute and play something else that's outside of the normal mindset that you play in because it's going to force you down a different path. So good example is if you play that paladin instead, 
if you decide, you know, instead of a rogue, I'm going to be a paladin. Like a lawful good paladin. Yeah. I and love now that. you're going to change things up in your brain because you're not going to be an edgelord. And if you are at that point, again, after once again changing character, you're probably not going to come back to the table. But <laughs> it's one of those things where you have an opportunity to step outside of yourself, which everybody wants to do in these games. And now you're having an opportunity to say, how do I reframe my own personal narrative? I love that. We've talked in the past about the idea of, do I play a thinly veiled version of myself or do I play the opposite of myself? Obviously, there's steps in the middle, but I love that idea. And that makes me feel a little uncomfortable and a little funky because it sounds hard. It sounds Mm -hmm. challenging. But again, if you're exhibiting some of these behaviors that we're going through, I think that's a really great place to start. Yeah. The other thing is having a good understanding of time, time commitments, and what it takes to gather a game together, especially an in-person game, and how we're kind of waiting for everybody's stars to align, especially when we're adults and we're in the working world, and we have kids or other obligations that make it very difficult to sit down together. We finally find a time where somebody doesn't cancel at the last minute, and you're sitting here kind of taking it in your own direction while everybody else is kind of like, this is not great. And then even as a, as a game master, the amount of time and prep and effort that goes into every single session is enormous. And so for that to be taken away because you're feeling some other kind of way today that's going to make it so that we're not going to play, you're, we're going to play your show or through your distractions or through your inappropriate behavior, nobody appreciates that. Yeah, and I think specifically from a, a game master perspective, one of the big reveals, one of the big shocks that I had when I first really got into the hobby was exactly how much time the preparation took. Yeah. Because I think often this is measured in hours mm-hmm. upon hours upon hours every week. And so a lot of times that's just the logistics of the host, right? Like Aaron, when we when you host games, there's usually chicken nuggies and <laughs> drinks and a charcuterie board and maps and props and riddles and minis. You know what I mean? Right. I, it just, it seems like it takes half a dozen hours to it do does. this stuff. And that's why for me, these player behaviors are especially tragic mm-hmm. because it, as you just said, it doesn't honor the amount of time and energy and effort that, all of us have put in to getting this game off the ground. Yeah, I agree. And I one of the best ways of tracking that for me has been during COVID and then after where we still use a lot of virtual tabletops or VTTs like Roll20 that it tracks how many hours you put in there. Uh, I legitimately have three times as many hours as my players in those same campaigns because of the amount of time it takes and how much effort that goes into it. And it's a labor of love. I don't, I don't you know... I hate the idea of doing this work. It's it's great for me. But I want you to show up and actually show up and have a good time. Otherwise, I will keep my, my table group a, a very niche, closed group where we're all going to have a good time. And if you're not here and abiding by that and having that self-reflection, then it's going to be hard to find you here at the table. Yeah. And for me, in summary here, the idea is to remember that we are telling a great story together mm-hmm. and that we're all equal members and share that responsibility. And I think if you, if we all, if I keep that in mind as I'm at the table, whatever my role is, I think it's going to be hard to aggressively be toxic. 
I agree with what you're saying and that I think that we're all on this shared journey together and experience and the more we can do together to have fun and bridge that very precious time that we, we rarely get to sit down and do this to be a more enriching experience. Yeah. And I just keep thinking about this term, know thyself. Yeah. If you, if you worry you're the problem in some way, large or small, you probably are. And that's great. Yeah. Let's work on it. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's, you know, that famous joke. Well, I'm not going to name which famous singer it is, so I don't have people bombarding this podcast. But there is that famous joke about a singer who always sings about breakups and about how awful that person was. And then the joke is that, well, maybe the next song should be, maybe it's me. <laughs> <laughs> I think I might know who you're talking about. That was really fun. I love this topic. And for me, the part that I think is really challenging is the, well, what if it's me? What do I do about it component? Right. Which reminds me very much of therapeutic experiences that I've had, like mm-hmm. actually in therapy. But I think we're all works in progress. And so I'm taking this as a challenge for myself to address my own behavior, but also to partner with other folks who may exhibit these behaviors as well. And I'm really excited about maybe getting to a place where, you know, in a future podcast where we can talk about DM behaviors that we may may see as toxic as well. I think that's a really a rich category. Indeed it is. Well, thank you for taking the time to listen to us and we hope to welcome you back next week. Thanks everybody.